Honestly, the biggest surprise for me, and this is going way back to my undergraduate days, was not hating Shakespeare. That was probably the biggest surprise I encountered because I loved reading in high school. You know, I read all the time, but when I got to undergraduate, it never crossed my mind to be an English major because the version of literary studies that I'd gotten in high school was memorizing birth and death dates, admiring the work of great dead white men. It was about aesthetic appreciation and sort of factual learning. And so even though I loved reading and I loved thinking about literary texts, I never for a second considered being an English major. Eventually I thought, you know, maybe I should try this. And so I signed up for a Shakespeare course and said, you know, if I can survive a course in the ultimate dead white man, I can maybe get away and do this English major. It was my sort of test case. So that class really is what put me here today. Though today's guest didn't set out initially with her sights set on English literature as a chosen métier, this is precisely where she landed. And yes, with 16th and 17th century literature at the core of her research, there's no getting away from some of those great dead white men. But she brings enthusiasm, energy, and new perspective to her field, and has found many women writers from that time period to study, including a focus on 17th century writer Margaret Cavendish. On this edition of the podcast, Professor Liza Blake spins us through her work in the Department of English and Drama, exploring her current research program at UTM that includes two books in the works focused on several early modern authors and their exploration of philosophies of nature. With this second season of the podcast focused on women in academia, She also imparts some advice for young female scholars that can be useful for really anyone starting out in their career. Hello, and welcome to View to the U, an eye on UTM research. I'm Carla DeMarco at U of T, Mississauga. View to the U is a monthly podcast that will feature UTM faculty members from a range of disciplines who will illuminate some of the inner workings of the science labs and enlighten the social sciences and humanities hubs at UTM. Liza Blake is an assistant professor in the Department of English and Drama at UTM. Her research focuses on medieval and Renaissance literature, poetics, literature and science, and literature and philosophy. In 2017, she co-edited an edition of 16th and 17th century fables called Arthur Golding's A Moral Fable Talk and Other Renaissance Fable Translations. And in 2016, she co-edited the book Lucretius and Modernity, Epicurean Encounters Across Time and Disciplines. She is currently working on two book projects, one called Early Modern Literary Physics, and another called Choose Your Own Poems and Fancies. I understand that your research comes at an interesting approach at the intersection of literature and philosophy and literature and science and early modern, modern literature. And so I was wondering if you could speak a bit more about that and how do they intersect? I'm here to talk today about two different research projects that I'm working on. Um, I'm in this somewhat unenviable position of working on two books at once because I've made poor life choices, but I'll think a little bit about how they intersect. (laughs) Um, So the first book project, which is based on my dissertation, is called Early Modern Literary Physics. And the argument is that literary texts are doing physics, are doing natural philosophy. And this project came around because when I was a graduate student, I kept on finding this word 
word in the text I was interested in, and the word was physiologia, which is a Greek word that then got imported into Latin in the 16th and 17th centuries. And physiologia means the logos or the study of fusis or nature. It's the root of what we now think of today as two very different sciences, one of which is physics, the study of inanimate bodies, of particles of motion, on the one hand, and then physiology, the study of living, moving bodies on the other. And so physiologia as the sort of study of nature includes both of these, the animate and the inanimate in one science. Uh, and then it also has a philosophical or a cosmological dimension. So people who say that they're thinking about physiologia are not just doing science with living and non-living bodies, but are also thinking about the big questions about the nature of nature, what nature is, what it's made of, how it operates, what causes things to move and change. And I was interested in this concept, physiologia, as a big umbrella concept, partly because it's what makes 17th century science and natural philosophy so exciting to me. It's what I really admire the way that 17th century thinkers are willing to reinvent nature at the drop of a hat sometimes, and partly because the philosophical nature of it, rather than I would say the scientific nature of it, really leaves an opening for literary texts to do some really important work in this field. And so the argument of the book is that early modern literary texts are using literary features as a way of thinking about what nature is as a sort of parallel to philosophy. So for example, one of the authors in my book, William Gilbert, he wrote a book called De Magnete of the Magnet, and the longer title is Nova Physiologia De Magnete, A New Physics of the Magnet, A New Physiologia of the Magnet. And essentially what this book is, and this is a massive simplification, but here we are, William Gilbert thought that Aristotelian philosophy, natural philosophy, couldn't account for what magnets did and how they operated couldn't explain in Aristotelian physics why a magnet and iron were attracted to one another. And so he invented a new physics, a nova physiologia, with attraction at its center. He was the first one to argue that the Earth was a giant magnet, which of course is correct. And he did experiments with magnets. So he's often hailed as one of the fathers of sort of experimental science at the beginning of the 17th century. But alongside that experimental science, he was also coming up with a new cosmology around attraction, magnetism, and what he called the anima or the soul of magnets. So it's a revision of Aristotelian natural philosophy, but it's also his new physics. And this is what interests me about the 17th century, that people are willing to come up with new physics willy-nilly, right, as a way of thinking about the concepts that matter to them. William Gilbert's an interesting figure, especially for the sort of long story we tell about the rise of science in the 17th century, partly because of the role he plays in Francis Bacon's work. Francis Bacon, another sort of father of science figure who, a couple years after Gilbert had published his Nova Physiologia de Magnete, a couple decades after Francis Bacon publishes things saying we need to reinvent what science is going to be. We need to change the way we think about nature. We need to stop using deductive reasoning. We need to stop saying something like, what if all magnets have souls? What follow from that? Let's make up a new physics. And instead, we need to use inductive reasoning. We need to stop jumping to conclusions. We need to gather as much data as possible, both using experiments and using observation. And only once we have that data can we draw some general conclusions or principles from it. But William Gilbert Bacon said was dangerous because he did a little bit of experiment 
and then use those experiments to jump too quickly to sort of huge philosophy. And so one of the important steps Bacon says, and this is in a couple of his writings, is to stop doing what Gilbert did, to stop jumping so quickly to new physics. And so in the sort of arc of the introduction of my book, I talk about the way that physiologia, the sort of concept I'm interested in exploring, is murdered by science. It's sort of killed by Bacon and then his followers who, again, continue the idea that we need to stop inventing natural philosophy whole cloth and instead focus on small, minute observations. The reason I'm interested in physiologia before it gets sort of taken over by science is that I think that literary texts, and this is something that undergirds most of my research and also a great deal of my teaching, literary texts are interesting to me and are worth teaching, are worth reading, because a lot of them are working out what we might call today philosophical concepts. They're not doing it with structured arguments, they're doing it with things like plots and similes and metaphors and things like that, but they are working through philosophical questions, and the texts I'm exploring in my book are working through philosophical questions about nature. So in addition to Gilbert, I pair him with a play by Ben Jonson, who's a 17th century playwright, a contemporary of Shakespeare's, but way more self-important. He has a play, a late play, called The Magnetic Lady, where he has read Gilbert's treatise, and he's read the people who are talking about Gilbert in pamphlets. And we know this because Ben Jonson is incredibly pedantic and he has a character say, I see that you've been reading Barlow, who's one of the pamphlet writers. So thank you for that, Jonson. So we know that he's read Gilbert. We know that he's grappling with this physics. And the play is a quasi-allegorical exploration of magnetic souls, magnetic anima, magnetic psychologies, magnetic minds, as a way of thinking about plots and how plots work. The Lady Magnet, Lady Lodestone, I think her name is, gets together with Ironsides in the end, right? So there's sort of a physical magnetic allegory happening. But what Johnson is doing in this play is using Gilbert's idea of attraction as a key principle of nature as a way of thinking about moving characters around on the stage and the way that the psychology of a character works, right? So he's taking that physics and he's putting it into this literary form. So that's the sort of arc of the project. I'm thinking about the way that literary things like character motivation, plot structures, similes are thinking through actually some fundamental questions about what nature is and what it does, um, how it develops. The last two chapters of my book are on a figure named Margaret Cavendish, who's a 17th century writer. She really did it all. She was a poet, she was a playwright, she wrote novels, she wrote essays, she wrote an autobiography of her husband that then also kind of turned into a biography of herself. So she wrote in several genres. She was incredibly prolific. She was incredibly published. And she was incredibly interested in natural philosophy, and in particular natural philosophy as it was in the process of being overcome by science. She was interested in keeping what I think of as physiologia alive, even as the Royal Society, the group of scientists who were promulgating Bacon's arguments and trying to put them into effect, even as they were getting off the ground going and sort of inventing what we now think of as science and the scientific revolution, she was providing several caveats to that. So in some of her early natural philosophy, she's thinking about monism, the idea that everything is made up of only one substance. She's thinking 
about vitalism, sometimes also called panpsychism, the idea that everything is alive, even this table right here is alive, has some form of life and soul to it. And she's also in her early natural philosophy thinking about atomism, which is what I'm really working a lot with in my second project. And in her later natural philosophy, she's uh, interested in epistemological questions. So she has a text called Observations Upon Experimental Philosophy, in which she, I think, in her mind, destroyed the Royal Society. It's surprising they still existed after she wrote that treatise, I'm pretty sure. Because what she does is she goes after all the key principles of the rise of science. Empiricism, the idea that knowledge should be based on things that you can sense and feel. Inductive reasoning, the idea that you should not be developing philosophical ideas, but should be drawing very carefully a few small theories based on your observations. She takes these down one by one, and in particular she goes after a couple scientists who were very prominent in the Royal Society who were promulgating these ideas. So Hooke, who had published a book called Micrographia, a book about the microscope and all the cool things you could see. He has several famous images, so one is a huge foldout of a giant flea, and he said, look how complex the flea is when you look at it under the microscope. Nature is so beautiful. We can make our eyes do anything. So a lot of the early inventions of the Royal Society were attempting to expand the realm of sensation. So if everything is based on sight, we need to find a way to see more and better. And Cavendish, in addition to saying things, you know, like some people are colorblind, some people are, see things blurry. We can't trust our senses. It can't be the basis of real science. She also says about Hook, what good does it do to see a louse blown up? Does it stop it from biting? No, this teaches us nothing. All you're doing is playing with your toys and looking at silly pictures, right? Obviously, she did not win this battle in the long term, but it's an interesting sort of systematic critique of everything that is getting the new sciences off the ground. And simultaneously, while she's writing this book, which was also paired with what is now her most famous work, which is called The Blazing World, which is where a woman who sure seems a lot like Margaret Cavendish gets kidnapped by men because she's very beautiful um, and they take her on a boat and then the boat goes adrift to the North Pole and they like die because they were wicked but she lives because she's awesome and then the boat goes to the North Pole which is connected to another world at its pole and that world is populated with animal men so she gets found by bear men and taken to their king the emperor who is human she marries him and then he disappears from the story forever and she now rules this world and she sets up scientific societies, right? So um, throughout all of her work, she's thinking about the relationship between the fanciful, her word for imagination, she's thinking about fancy and reason, what we would call now something like literature and science, literature and philosophy. How was she received though at this time? Were people fans of her literature or? Uh, no, <laughs> um, not particularly. And she recognized that. So she was able to publish quite a bit because her husband was rich and was able to pay for it. And this was fairly standard in the time. A lot of publishing was vanity publishing. Um, you didn't publish to make money. You could give your book to a patron who would, you know, potentially fund you. So it wasn't all that unusual for her to pay to be published, but it 
was a bit unusual for her to pay to be published quite as much as she was. But for the most part, she wrote this Observations Upon Experimental Philosophy and published it the same year that she was invited to have a sort of visit to the Royal Society. And so obviously they hadn't read it or hadn't read it all that closely. And in a lot of her prefatory materials, of which she has several, like every work has something like 20 prefatory letters. Um, it's one of the best things about reading her and teaching her now. She says things like, I know that I will not be appreciated in my time. I hope that a later century will be able to like see what it is I'm doing and see how important I am. So here we are <laughs> finally bringing her back. I just can't help but think now we think of science and literature as so separate. Mm -hmm. So when do you think maybe this divide or shift uh, happens? I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, partly because although in the book I'm working on what I think of as literature and natural philosophy rather than literature and science. And so one of the arguments I'm making is that as far as science is still compatible with natural philosophy based on philosophical questions about nature and not on something like experimentalism, then they are basically the same thing. Um, you can think about nature by working through a philosophy of what it would mean if all matter is informed by forms, or you can think about nature by working through, for example, a translation of Ovid's Metamorphoses. That's another one of my chapters. But once it becomes science, there's sort of a barrier set up. Once the principles of science become empiricism, data gathering, inductive reasoning, that's a point where it's trying to differentiate itself from philosophy, and therefore it becomes a little bit harder for literature to get in. Now, this is not absolute. There's a lot of really good work, especially on um, 19th century science. There's a scholar named Jillian Beer who thinks a lot about what are we talking about when we talk about literature and science? Are we talking about translation? Are there ideas they have in common but different methods? There's a lot of really good work in this field, thinking about how do we think about these two things in relationship to one another. Uh, but one of the things that is exciting about working on pre-modern literature, by which I mean uh, what we usually call medieval and early modern, is that science, before this sort of pure invention of science as a pure methodology, as false as that may be, the idea at least that science can be sort of purified of similes, of fancy, of philosophy even in a lot of cases, before that happens, happens is when there's this really fruitful exchange. And then of course the way that literature and science interact in later periods is very different. When you say early modern, and maybe you said this, but you're talking 17th century, what is the time frame again? So for literature scholars, in particular literature scholars in English, early modern usually means 16th and 17th century. So after medieval, but before the enlightenment, before the 18th century. And there was one other thing that you mentioned I just want to follow up on. You said atomism. Mm -hmm. what, what does that mean? Is is that just the study of atoms? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, so atomism is the philosophy that posits that everything in the world is made up of tiny particles of matter. Okay, gotcha. Um, that's what I'm working on in my uh, in my second project. So I'm thinking a lot about early Margaret Cavendish because as far as I can tell, and this is a controversial statement, but it's one of the things I plan to argue. She never actually believed in atomism. She was a monist her whole life. She believed that everything was one substance and she was a vitalist. So that one substance was infused with life. And we see this in all of her writing where she'll say something like, there's no such thing as mind as distinct from body. Body is not inert matter everything is matter and everything is living. It has different degrees of reason, but everything has some kind of life in it. Okay. This is how you were saying like the table right. has. Even okay. the table. It's not very smart, but it has something. It has some form of life. 
that we need to be aware of and think about. Despite the fact that as far as I can tell, and again, this is not universally accepted, but I plan to argue it, as far as I can tell, her whole life she was both a monist and a vitalist. In her very early career, she publishes a book of poems called Poems and Fancies in 1653, which has a series of very short poems about atomism and how atoms make up the whole world. And atomism was an ancient philosophy. It was first begun by Democritus and Epicurus. A Roman poet named Lucretius wrote a poem called De Rerum Natura in which he said, the whole universe is made up of atoms. We don't need a god or gods to have created the world because the atoms were moving through a void and by chance one of them swerves and hit one another and a world sort of came out of that. And so it was a very controversial text in the Renaissance period because you know, you don't want to say that you don't need a god, um, although that's Lucretius's point. And yet, atomism is coming up as a very popular way of thinking about the physical world in the 17th century because scientists, and this includes both the Royal Society and philosophers, are saying to themselves, Aristotelian natural philosophy is no longer sufficient for properly explaining the way the world works. So the sort of parody of Aristotelian natural philosophy that these scientists are doing is they say, every scientific explanation in Aristotelian natural philosophy is tautological. Why does a magnet stick to iron? Because it is in its nature to do so. It is the form of the magnet to attract iron. You can hear how useless that is in their parody. And so instead, uh, they would say, you know, why does a magnet attract iron? And we want to explain this using mechanism, um, using corpuscular philosophy, as it's sometimes also called. So magnets obviously shoot out tiny little screw-shaped particles, and iron has little screw-shaped holes, and when they get close to one another, the little screw-shaped forms fit into the holes and that brings them together. Obviously that is incorrect, but now instead of saying we're explaining it by forms, they're saying we're explaining it by the shape, size, and motion of atoms. And so there's a big shift to move away from Aristotelian natural philosophy into a sort of explanation of nature where you can do it with atoms rather than with forms and what Aristotle was doing in his natural philosophy. Again, they're not really understanding Aristotle all that well, but that's their representation of what it is they're shifting to. And with Margaret Cavendish, though, I just want to ask one question about, okay, so you said that she had the ability to publish because her husband, she was a woman mm -hmm. of means, but she sounds like she would have been highly educated. Mm. So did she come from a background? Because at this time, not a lot of women were going yeah, to university, right? It's tricky. She definitely was not going to university, although she writes several letters to universities. I'm preparing to take a research trip to Oxford and Cambridge in the summer because they have an incredible density of copies of this collection of poems. And as far as I can tell, she sent a copy to every college because she thought that scholars should be reading her. She had no formal training in her autobiographical statement that she affixes to her husband's biography. She didn't know a lot of languages. She talks a lot about how she didn't know a lot of languages. So she was at the table with Descartes, who I think she would have liked to have like a real conversation with, but didn't know enough French and so wasn't able to, to communicate with him very well. She didn't know Latin. And so in one of her prefatory materials to her natural philosophical treatises, she says something like, maybe I think that what I'm talking about here is a completely new invention, but it may just be that I don't know enough Latin to know that someone has done this before, but 
from what I can tell, I've totally made this up, right? Yeah. So she didn't have a lot of languages. She didn't have a lot of formal training, but she tended to try and turn that to her advantage. And obviously, you know, atomism was in the air in the 17th century. And so even if she's not reading Lucretius in Latin, which we know that she couldn't have, and he also wasn't translated into English until after she had written this, people are talking about atomism and she's part of these conversations and interested in adding her own contribution to it. And so the form her contribution takes is, as I mentioned, short poems about atoms and how atoms make up the universe and can be used to explain all motion. And these poems are fascinating partly because they're about atomism, right, which is just an interesting philosophy, and partly because, and again this is not commonplace but is an argument I want to make, the poems themselves are functioning as atoms do in atomic philosophy. So one of the key principles of atomism, of atomic philosophy, is is that in order to explain nature, you need to understand not matter itself and its qualities, but arrangement. So Lucretius has something that's called the alphabetic paradigm where he says, other idiotic natural philosophers, what you do if you're a natural philosopher, you make fun of people before you. Lucretius says, other natural philosophers have said something like, why does wood light on fire? Well, it's because they say that there are tiny fire particles inside wood, waiting, latent, and they just need to be activated, and that's why fire can come out of wood for no reason. And Lucretia says that's idiotic, right? Because then you would want to say something like, why when I eat an apple does it turn into my body, right? How does digestion work? You'd have to say something like, inside every apple is tiny flesh particles and tiny bone particles, right? And it, this is wrong. This is the wrong way to think about it. We don't need to think that there are tiny particles inside everything that can then get divided. Instead, what you need to understand is that arrangement of particles, not the particles themselves, is what matters. So in the same way that I can spell dog and god, and that's the same basic letters, but they mean very different things. In the same way we can use 23 letters, because he's a Roman poet, we can use 23 letters to make all of these different ideas and words and poems. So atoms, a sort of limited number of atoms, just by their rearrangement, can invent the world we live in. Cavendish, I think, is particularly interested in this concept, and partly because each of the poems, which she sometimes calls atoms, each of the poems are very short. And when she revises the treatise in 1664, and at this point in her natural philosophy, she is explicitly repudiating atomism. She says, I definitely don't think that atomism is real. Nevertheless, when she comes back to Poems and Fancies 11 years later, 1664, she republishes the atom poems, except she's radically shuffled them. So they're in a completely new arrangement. And each of the two arrangements makes sense. They have have different logic, and yet she's still putting them into effect. And so I think what she's doing with her atom poems, what I'm going to argue in my second project she's doing with these atom poems, is she's trying to think about the atomic concept of arrangement, but instead of thinking about it at the unit of the letter, like Lucretius does, she's thinking about it at the unit of the poem. What does it mean to read these poems in a different order? What does it mean if you put a poem, this poem, next to that one instead of that one? And so my second project is trying to capture what's going on with her atom 
poetry. So I'm going to create a website that has each of the two versions, the version from the 50s, the version from the 60s, and you can shuffle them into the different arrangements just by clicking a couple buttons, or you can make some paths of your own. So in the process of teaching these poems, I found a couple that go really well together. So I'll put up a couple sort of alternate arrangements and I'll let people visiting the website do their own arrangements as well. So it's partly rearrangeable edition, and then it's also a study thinking about what intervention these poems are making in the history of atomic philosophy, what these poems have to say about the history of reading more broadly. It's fairly common in reading Renaissance texts to find materials, especially prefatory materials, letters get shuffled and moved across different printings. So I'm going to sort of situate her project in the broader history of reading, and then I'm also going to think about what difference it makes that this project of this 17th century female poet who's thinking about atomism can really only be sort of fully realized in the 21st century. So I'm thinking about the relationship between what she's doing and sort of digital hypermedia. She sounds so fascinating. She's wonderful. It's such an interesting story, but also just to think, here's this woman having the chutzpah to write the universities and say people should be reading my work. Like, in those days, it must have been so unusual and... Yeah, I mean, there are certainly more. So right now at UTM, I'm teaching a women writers course, and there's this illusion that there weren't that many female poets in the early modern period, but in fact, there were tons of them. They're just, not all of them are quite as self-promoting as Cavendish's, let's put it that way. I will say UTM is a great center of Cavendish studies right now. We're about to do about two and a half weeks of Cavendish in my women writers course. We're going to read her poems. We're going to read one of her plays, The Convent of Pleasure. We're going to read The Blazing World, her sort of famous proto-sci-fi novel. And then I've also let us series of research opportunity projects, which is a program, a wonderful program that UTM has where undergraduates can work on you with a research project. So with my ROP students over the past three years, we've been editing all of Poems and Fancies, making notes about all of the variants, because in addition to rearranging all the Adam poems in the 1660s, I would say every other line has what editors would call a substantive change. So not just a change in spelling, but a new word a new line. She fixes meter. She changes imagery. Almost every other line has a sort of major change like this. My UTM undergraduates and I are producing a full edition of this that'll be put online so that it will be possible to teach these poems um, in classrooms. And I love that you're involving the undergraduates, but also I love this idea of you have the option to rearrange the poems that you're mentioning. Mm -hmm. I just, I think that's so yes. cool. Yes, that version is coming a bit later because again, I've made the poor life choice to work on two monographs <laughs> at once. Uh, so at the moment, there's just the 50s order, which looks incoherent on its face, but I think is actually more useful as a way of thinking about concepts. So she'll give you a concept and then give you an example and she's sort of leveling up your understanding. I am curious if there was anything that you came across that was like the most surprising finding for you or maybe even coming across Margaret Cavendish. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the biggest surprise for me, and this is going way back to my undergraduate days, was not hating Shakespeare. That was probably the biggest (laughs) surprise I encountered because I loved reading in high school. You know, I read all the time, but when I got to undergraduate, it never crossed my mind to be an English major because the version of literary studies that I'd gotten in high school was memorizing birth and death dates, Mm -hmm. admiring the work of great dead white men. It was about aesthetic appreciation 
information and sort of factual learning. And so even though I loved reading and I loved thinking about literary texts, I never for a second considered being an English major because I was like, I don't want to do that for a living. I don't want to spend four years venerating dead white men. Um, <laughs> and then my first year, I took a lot of classes that I thought would have reading, but without it. And eventually I thought, you know, maybe I should try this. And so I signed up for a Shakespeare course and said, you know, if I can survive a course in the ultimate dead white man, I can maybe get away and do this English major. It was my sort of test case to see if I was willing to consider it. And I just happened to have a great professor, Jonathan Gill Harris, who's now teaching in India. And on the first day, he said something like, your job as students is not to genuflect at the altar of Shakespeare and say what a great poet he is. Your job is to work with me, to think critically, to learn how to read this, to learn how to talk about it. And that was the moment where I said, oh, oh, this is different at the undergrad level. This is different at the university level. And maybe this is something I could do. So that class really is what put me here today yeah. it really turned me around that's probably the biggest surprise and do you remember the very first Shakespeare play that you read that sort of hooked you <laughs> we read Titus Andronicus which is now the the play that I teach because it's a really great way I found for those students who come in just ready to love Shakespeare and call him a genius it's a great way to poke a hole in that so oh. <laughs> it's a really fascinating play he's engaging a lot with the work of Ovid um, very explicitly so it's deeply involved with these mythological stories and it's doing a lot of work with politics and violence. It's a very smart play, but it's also incredibly brutal, um, incredibly violent. It's sort of the Quentin Tarantino Shakespeare play. Um, and so it's a good way to show students that it's possible to take Shakespeare seriously and to read him very critically without needing to go to the aesthetic, you know, this is a great piece of literature kind of argument. So... What do you feel is the biggest impact of your work? So the biggest impact of my work, I would say, comes in a couple directions. There's two main branches, one of which is I am very interested in textual editing, both as a useful thing in the world, right? So I've had several colleagues at other universities say to me that they are using the website that I've put up to teach Margaret Cavendish's poetry. So far, I've only done part one, but I'm working with work-study students and with ROP students and RAs now to finish the other parts. So hopefully they'll all be up by the end of 2018. And so part of it is people are able to teach her because this edition is out. I've also done an edition of fable translations with a colleague of mine, Catherine Vermeer Santos, at the heart of which edition is a manuscript by Arthur Golding, another author I work a lot on, a 16th century poet. And so part of it is my editorial work is just making these texts accessible that aren't accessible otherwise. In terms of the book, Early Modern Literary Physics, one of the reasons that I'm really eager to publish it and get it out there is that I think it will change the way that we think about literature and science and the rise of science. I think one of the biggest innovations of the book, by focusing on physiologia rather than on science, on experimental science, is that it really does make an opening for the way that we think and talk about literature in a non-apologetic way. So not literature as the sort of handmaiden to science or literature as taking up the tropes of science and and displaying them, right? So looking 
at those moments where Milton talks about Galileo in Paradise Lost and saying, wow, he did it. He knew a little bit about science. Good for him, right? Yeah. I think one of the really important parts of the methodology of that first monograph, really modern literary physics, is that it's taking literature seriously as a contributor to ongoing conversations about what nature was in the period. And so that's probably my biggest academic contribution in that first monograph. I think it will change the way that we do literature and science, where this is my grand ambition for it, at least in the early modern period, and I hope also potentially beyond. In terms of broader public applications, one of them would be the making accessible of people like Margaret Cavendish. And I also, because I've done these research opportunity projects for so long, I've now involved, I think, something like 12 undergraduates in different editorial research projects in particular. I'm propagating a sort of generation of editors who've come to it through uh, working on these Renaissance writers with me, Renaissance poets and authors, but who are now interested in and who I'm writing letters for for jobs, different kinds of editing, academic editing, editing of novels and plays not written by incredibly old dead people, but by real living people. I think I'm sort of putting more editors out there in the world, and editing is a great way of learning how to read, right? Every term when I bring a new group of undergraduates on to work on Cavendish with me. I have to teach them meter because a lot of the changes she's making are metrical. Um, I have to teach them how to use the Oxford English Dictionary to figure out what a word meant in the 17th century, even though it looks like it. we know what it means now. I have to teach them a lot about what it means to read and interpret poetry so that they can make well-informed editorial decisions. And so I'm now doing this on a much bigger scale in my class, Early Modern Women's Writers, that I'm teaching here at UTM this term. We, as a class, are going to produce an anthology of women's writing. Every student is picking one text and editing it according to the editorial principles we've developed as a group. And we as a class are going to make a new anthology that I could then teach in other classes or I could make available to other people who want to teach women's writing in other schools. So there's also a sort of popularization or accessibility of some of the basic tools that we need to do this work. Do you find in your classes, they are English literature students, but are people just not reading as much? Because this is something I think about a lot and worry, <laughs> worry about. I haven't found this at all. I often have my students tell me that they are having trouble keeping up with the reading because they're reading other novels. I taught English 101 last term. I taught a group of first years at a new class we had at our curriculum called How to Read Critically. And they all came to me and sort of told me what novels they would have read, what novels they were reading at the moment and what difference that makes. And so you don't take English because you don't like reading. That's right. Um, <laughs> so all my students are definitely doing lots of pleasure reading. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> Coming up, women in academia. Liza has some words of wisdom for young scholars of any stripe that could help bolster your productivity and help to make long-standing connections. So I mentioned to you that the second season of You to the You is about women in academia. So I'm, I'm happy to be talking to a range of women who are working here at UTM in a bunch of different departments. And there's been a lot of discussion lately of promoting and supporting women in all careers. But I am curious if you've personally come across any challenges in the course of your career, or do you have any words of encouragement for some young female academics out there? Sure. Yeah, I mean, one of the tricky parts about being a young female academic is 
is the sort of assumption on the part of a lot of people that you are not a professor. There was a meme going around for a long time that was, uh, this is what a professor looks like. And it was just pictures of people who were not middle-aged white men wearing tweed. And it was a valuable meme, right? So here I am a professor and I am a woman. Here I am a professor and I am a person of color. And definitely the first few years I was here, both at UTM and also when I went to libraries to do research, when I went to conferences, people would assume that I was either a graduate student or in some cases an undergraduate. <laughs> that happened to me a couple of times on the UTM campus. I'm now much more grizzled, so I rarely get that anymore. They assume that I'm an old, wizened <laughs> graduate student rather than undergraduates, but it did happen. And so one piece of advice I have for women in academia is just to not let that bother you as much as it can. I also now always give lectures to my students on the first day of class where I make very explicit, please do not call me Ms. Blake or Mrs. Blake. I know that I'm a woman. You don't need to remind me. So you can call me Professor Blake. A lot of my students call me Professor Liza, which I think is adorable. Yeah. Um, I actually don't mind if they call me Liza, although a lot of female professors do. Um, just be aware of what people want you to call them and never say Miss or Ms. Professor is a good gender neutral term that we all use. And then the other advice I have for, you know, so right, the first point is just make clear to your students what your expectations are because they appreciate you telling them what you want. Yeah. The other sort of global piece of advice for women in academia that I have is to think, especially about what I think of as horizontal networking, establishing connections with people at your level. So one vision of networking, one understanding of what it is we do when we're establishing professional connections is go to the most important person you can and get them to be your mentor and establish relationship with them. And a lot of academia is structured like that. So you have a PhD supervisor, you have big important people in the field that you want to sponsor you. And those connections are certainly valuable, but they shouldn't be made at the expense of sort of lateral connections, horizontal connections. So Catherine Vermeer Santos, who's my collaborator on a lot of things, she and I started graduate school in the same year. We were both in the same area, early modern literature. And we actually sat down and had a very frank conversation and said, you know, we can either compete for resources for the next six years, or we can collaborate and let's not turn this into a zero sum game. And I think that we are both better scholars because of it. We've edited books together. We just last week finished writing a book chapter together. Um, we organize panels. We introduce one another to new people. Some of the most valuable connections you'll make are with one another. And so it doesn't have to be all women, but it's certainly a less, I think, patriarchal way of thinking about networking, right? There's not a father of the field that you need to, or a mother, mm -hmm. right? There's not a sort of central high figure that will determine your future. You and the people at the same level as you can sort of build the future you want together. So that's my biggest piece of advice is as you're putting your work out there, as you're establishing professional connections, don't only look up, sort of look around you as well. And speaking of horizontal networking, I thought actually I might end with with Margaret Cavendish, uh, because Margaret Cavendish is often thought of as a completely solitary figure, and she sets herself up for this. So in her autobiography, she says that she's always been painfully shy and withdrawn and only feels comfortable around her family. She didn't know enough languages, so when she was in exile with uh, Henrietta Maria in the middle of the English Civil War, she couldn't talk to anyone, and she sat alone. And she even has engravings of herself
herself sitting alone with a book and describing herself as studious and alone, and then simultaneously describing herself as exemplary, uh, one-of-a-kind, singular. And so a common way to think about Margaret Cavendish is exceptional lonely, alone in a tower, just thinking her thoughts and writing them down for the world to read. And that's certainly an image that she promoted. But at the same time, Cavendish also formed what I've been calling these sort of horizontal networks. So one of them was with her husband, who as far as we can tell, took her natural philosophy very seriously, took her writing very seriously. He has a lot of prefatory poems talking about how excellent she is and how her writing is. He wrote poems for some of her plays that she marks, this my lord uh, husband wrote. And so even though she wasn't forming these active female communities, she was working with her husband and she was also working with her brother-in-law, Sir Charles Cavendish, who she takes quite seriously. So at the end of Poems and Fancies Part 4, which I'm just editing with an undergraduate now, there's a poem in which she's just finished writing her series of poems about fairies, and in particular the way that fairies moving around in the brain may cause different mental states. It's an unusual moment, but there you have it. Book 4 is very exciting. And at the end of it, there's a poem that says, you know, Sir Charles Cavendish came into my chamber and said to me, oh, I see you're writing about fairies. Please give my regards to the fairy queen next time you see her. And she takes that as an excuse to enter the land of fairy back uh, once again in her imagination and have an interaction with the fairy queen. And it's this fascinating sort of meta poem about what it means to use that sort of joke from her brother-in-law as an excuse to think about what the imagination is capable of doing and what is actually possible for writing to allow her to do and to think. And I think that that poem wouldn't have happened if she wasn't sort of proud of the fact that she can joke around with her good brother. So despite the fact that she thinks of herself as this singular lonely figure and tells you that she's a singular lonely figure, she, like many successful women, found a way to form communities around herself that would let her do and think about what she wanted to do. So you don't necessarily need to go to the top of the field. You need to take people at your level seriously and also the people under you seriously. So for the past three years, I've been doing amazing research and amazing editorial work with my UTM undergraduates because I train them up to my level and then we work as collaborators. And it's useful to have them to bounce ideas off of. They notice things that I might have noticed otherwise, but I'm not, again, sort of giving things to them from a top-down way. The point of an undergraduate class is to bring the students up to your level of conversation and then have a conversation with them. And I think that the people I know who are doing this the best in the field are women at the moment. And that may be a coincidence or not, but it's something that's definitely worth keeping going. Yeah. Well, I think that wraps up pretty much what I wanted to ask you today, but I just wanted to thank you so much for coming in and talking about your work. Thank you for having me. I would like to thank everyone for listening to today's show. I would like to thank my guest, Liza Blake, for coming in to speak about her work in the Department of English and Drama. Thank you to the Office of the Vice Principal of Research for their support, for everyone who has been helping to promote this podcast, and for all the great feedback I've received. And please feel free to get in touch with me. My contact information is on our SoundCloud page. If you have feedback, or if there is someone from UTM that you'd like to see featured on a future View to the U. Lastly, as always, thank you to Tim Lane for his tunes and support. Thank you.